0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Talking Minds podcast. Um, Not got Tracy with us today, um, but this is a really personal podcast uh, for me. And I've got an amazing guest. For those who don't know, um, my journey to becoming a therapist, to uh, doing what I do now, came out of a time in my life as a serving police officer when suicidal thoughts were ever constant in my mind. And a real awareness when I came out the other side that mental health support for our front line really isn't there. There's no there's no consistency, and the fear of being judged when you're really not coping is ever present. Steve Thornton, Lobby Thornton is a long-serving metropolitan police officer, firearms officer and Firearms Instructor and is such an advocate for ensuring that those brave men and women that stand on the front line and do the impossible task that many people can't even contemplate, get the right care when they're in that vulnerable place. So I'm really, really glad to have on as my guest today, Steve Thornton, Um, and I would love you to share this with as many people as you possibly can. Because even heroes need help.
1: Welcome to the Talking Minds podcast.
0: Come join us as we chat about a whole host of mindset-related issues, giving you both the mail and female perspective. Don't miss out on the exciting interviews we'll be conducting with some truly inspirational guests. My name is Marcus Matthews and I'm a Rapid Transformational Therapist whose quest is to transform people's minds to reach their own personal greatness. My name is Tracy Carroll. I'm a Rapid Transformational Therapy practitioner and my mission is to end the stigma surrounding mental health issues and show people they no longer need to suffer in silence. begin hello everybody welcome to the talking minds podcast and i am very 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 excited to have uh, lobby with me lobby thornton um and what i'm gonna do is i'm just gonna lobby introduce himself um and then we're gonna get into some really deep discussions um about mental health and uh, mental health particularly in policing so welcome lobby if you want to introduce yourself to everybody
1: uh, thank you, Marcus, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to have a chat with you, um, a like-minded person. It's always good to meet up with someone who has got a, shares the same passion. Uh, well, I'm Lobby Thornton. Uh, if I'm in trouble, it's Steve Thornton, so everyone will know me by Lobby Thornton. Uh, spent 30 years in, in the Met Police, uh, retired in 2013, having spent the vast majority of that time in S19, the Met Police Firearms Unit. Um, took uh, retirement. Uh, the six months prior to retirement was, uh, uh, it's a proper learning experience for me. Uh, I went through a massive as to whether I should leave the job or not. And my wife will testify to the fact I was a proper pen in the ass to live with during that time because I didn't know whether to leave the job or not. But then circumstances forced me and I knew it's time to go. So I then moved on to uh, Devon, um, Timmouth and Devon and spent two years as a beach bum, which was, you know, fantastic, no early late, and nights, uh, until eventually I had a phone call uh, saying that there were shorter firearms instructors in the Met and would I sort of consider coming back as a firearms instructor. I had a feeling my wife actually put the phone call in to get rid of me because I was under her feet. So I, I went back to the Met in 2016 and took up a role of a c- civilian firearms instructor. But unfortunately for the Met, I had a bit of a hidden agenda. Because uh, during my sort of uh, retirement uh, period, I got involved with the Police Firearms Officers Association and started working with their welfare and wellbeing side and working on the welfare support programme. So I became acutely aware of the um, wellbeing crisis, really, and welfare crisis within the police. So when I went back in 2016, I set about uh, putting together a wellbeing initiative down at the firearms training centre which included mental health first aid training for uh, supervisors, uh, bringing in uh, different sort of um, subjects like suicide prevention at the centre, uh, a fit for purpose, stress awareness, uh, input on for the firearms officers. Uh, and and this, is, this has been my sort of passion and, and my sort of mission since I've been back. Uh, and I've just recently set up my own business, uh, providing a sort of totally independent sort of resource for officers and and family members to contact us if they're sort of struggling with just, you know, day-to-day policing really, the trauma that comes with it. So that's where I am at the moment. And I think that's where our paths have crossed because we've both got that shared sort of uh, mission really. Um, So yeah, it's an ideal opportunity to have a chat about what we're doing.
0: Now, I'm gonna just pick on just a subtle thing that you said, and it was in your voice because you have not got a Southern accent. So I just want to ask, of all that time, how did you end up in the Met? That's that's the question. Why not GMP or Lanks or somewhere like that? <laughs>
1: well, yeah, I mean, uh, deep down, I'm a Lancastrian, originally from Bolton. And for those that don't know Bolton, that's where the M62 is cobbled. Um, so that's where we originated from. But my dad was in the forces, the armed forces, and we travelled around, well, in Germany and and uh, in the UK. Um, and we eventually moved down to Eastbourne in, in East Sussex, um, where well, I applied for Sussex Police originally, but they weren't recruiting and they said, well, you know, the Met are recruiting. So I, I applied for the Met Police um, and actually joined the Met Police Cadets. So I actually joined at 17. So I was a, a boy police officer. Uh, so that's, that's why I ended up in the Met. I originally tried to get into Sussex Police, but uh, was rejected by Sussex Police. So unfortunately for them
0: so we, we've got a bit of a link there I suppose as well because I'm ex I'm ex-military as well as as ex-police and one of the things obviously you've been in that for a long time then so from the age of 17 to where it is now what changes do you think have come about how is how is policing different how's that impacted mental health what what changes have you seen and why is it maybe different now than when it was or is it different that's one of the things that I've been really interested in.
1: It's massively different now uh, from when I first started policing. Um, and I think the major difference is, is uh, back then when I first started, we worked on reliefs and you had that team sort of camaraderie, really. Uh, and police canteens. I mean, although you know, we, we talk about the canteen culture and there's a lot of negativity attached to that, what we don't realise is the massive benefit that I had for people's mental health. So if you're involved in an incident, you go back to the station, you write your notes, you're sat in the canteen, having a cup of tea, and you're able to sort of debrief it with your colleagues. And, you know, the modern day policing, when I was still in the police, uh, the demise of police canteens, you could see, I mean, there's, there's no surprise that with the demise of police canteens, there's been a, a rise in sort of mental health Um, problems within the police and I I think it's got to be that link that we haven't got the facility now to properly sort of debrief and have that sort of team bonding because you know you're just going from call to call to call and and the teams have been stripped to the bare bonds and they just don't have time to reflect on on what they're doing and analyze what they're doing. So a lot of work is being taken on with them. So they're not defusing before they go on.
0: Yeah, and I agree with that. And one of the things that I found was when I was kind of asking, why did I have the breakdown? Why did I feel the way that I did? One of the things that was really key, and I don't know if you've found this with officers when um, they've started to go down that mental health spiral, especially with PTSD, you feel completely disconnected and one of the things we know one of the rules of the mind is that the mind's there to keep you alive not happy Mm. it likes the familiar um and it wants to make connection we want to feel connected and safe we're tribal at the end of the day aren't we you know we do there's that phrase isn't that my gang's bigger than your gang in the police it's probably not pc to say that but it is one of those things that you know there's nothing there's no better if you're dealing with an incident to hear a load of sirens coming up and you know that your mockers are coming up and they're gonna help you out is there Mm. and there's more single crewing happening now we've even got pcsos that are kind of responding to incidents that they shouldn't be and that just that lack of backup i guess has got to have a toll hasn't it got to have a toll of
1: course it is and i think um and having, um, in, I'm dealing with my colleagues who are still operational, still on the front line. And, and you talk to me, you say, well, you know, why haven't you been able to discuss this with your peers, with your you know, supervision? And it's just that they don't have the time. And plus the fact they don't want to pass on the burden to the colleagues who they know are under pressure anyway. So, you know, everyone's sort of you know fighting through this storm. Um, but it's just trying to get them to come forward and actually talk about what they're actually going through. And they're not being given that, that opportunity to do that. They're not being given the opportunity to you know, actually offload you know, what they're going through. Um, because if they did, they'd realise that you know, they're not on their own. There's other people going through you know, the same experience, just that they don't have the time to share those experiences. And you know, this is why peer support is, is so important these days.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting that you use the word of a collective of kind of officers as relief. Because it is, isn't it? You need that time down. You need your time on your refs. You need your time to go and, sorry for those that don't know, refs is having a break and you're not going from job to job. And the other thing that I think I've noticed, certainly, I don't know if it's the same in the Met, that on your busy nights, your Friday, Saturday night, you would, you would have an inspector and a few sergeants out and you would have that. And supervision really has stepped away you know skippers are more in the in the office now having to do paperwork having to deal with a lot of stuff that really skippers never used to did they sergeants never used to have to do that they were more operational more supervisory but now it's more tick boxing and paperwork i don't know if that that is the same in the met because i know every force works slightly different or every service is different but is that something that you saw especially firearms certainly
1: well, yeah. Well, with the firearm side of things, I mean, it was quite a relief to finally specialise because, you know, when I was based at the station, well, I mean, I worked at Battersea, which was a busy South London uh, inner division, uh, which you know, had borders with Clapham and Brixton. So, you know, we, we, you know, it was quite a busy ground to work. Uh, but we had you know, a good sort of relief system. And we even had, you know, we'd have a, a section sergeant who would come out on patrol. You know, you, you've got your sergeant, your custody sergeant inside who was doing all that off to the custody side of things. Uh, and you'd have a sergeant in the control room. So, you know, you had sergeants around, but you would have a section sergeant who would be out on patrol, you know, and, uh, and the odd time you'd be out driving a sergeant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then moving on to the firearms unit, Obviously, we would have a sergeant who would go out and patrol, and the inspector would, if we were involved in a job, the inspector would be called out to come down and do the you know tactical advice uh, side of things. So you know they were actually proactive sort of in their supervision as opposed to being based at the station. So they would be out and about, and sometimes they would get involved in jobs and you know, they come across something and be involved in the jobs as well. So they're still keeping hands on as well. So you know, uh, they still had a better understanding as to what the, the, the problems are their officers were facing uh, out on the streets. Whereas now I think, you know, because the sergeants are so uh, burdened down with the responsibility, they don't really get to see what it's like out on the front line for mm-hmm. their troops. You know, they can see the sort of, you know, the incident list and how I many incidents are outstanding and who's doing what, but, you know, to actually be out there going from call to call to call. And as you know, you know, not every incident is going to be the same. You know, you can go to what appears to be a straightforward incident. It can turn out to be a proper nightmare. You know, right. and so you look at it on the face of it, it looks pretty straightforward, but the actual officers dealing with that is under a lot of pressure. So it's uh, yeah, and I think that's that's where they lost that contact with their officers, really.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing that I'd like to bring in as well, because I know after um, when I was at BTP when um the MEM bombings happened and all, all that happened, I know one of the big things that came out of that was the impact on the comms operators, and we often Forget about those people. They actually they're not obviously they're not dealing with the incidents, but when they're listening to the radio, especially if an officer's being attacked and they're trying to get units to them, okay. again, you know, we often don't think about those back end staff that play such a vital role and how the impact of hearing those things and they go home with that and feel yeah. maybe they couldn't have helped and they have tried their best. Have you had much um, many conversations with people who work in? ops and stuff like that
1: where they well, I mean, yeah i mean i've actually got personal experience of, of working in a control room because uh, you know when i joined battersea um I was tricked into sort of doing uh, what we call a CAD course, which is, which is working in the control room. You know, it was a case of, well, if you do go and do this uh, CAD course, you, you'll get a driving course. Mm-hmm. So, you know, quite naively, I thought, oh, okay, then. So, and it was only going to be sort of like a three-month post in the CAD room. And three years later, you know, when I came out sort of blinking like Morocco mole. You realise uh, somebody got, put like,
0: handcuffs be, on your ankle and on, on the desk and you're like, yeah,
1: wait, I can't get out now. <laughs> so, I. I Again, I I can sort of fully appreciate what it's like to be sat in that control room, listen to your colleagues, you know, screaming for urgent assistance or, you know, one of your colleagues gets injured. So, you know, that feeling. uh, And it's it's this vicarious trauma as well. it builds up because even though you've not witnessed it or whatever, it it still has that massive impact on your mental health. So again, it was something I, I worked with. I, I I was working with the uh, one of the uh, uh, inspectors from the um, central command uh, control rooms at Lambeth in relation to sort of putting in wellbeing initiatives for the, for their officers and making sure they had sort of you know breakout rooms that they could go and go out just just to get away from that screen and just uh, have that moment of reflection and again training people up in sort of mental health first aid so they could support them uh, after that traumatic event because you know it does it, it's it's quite impactful really on your mental health working in those environments and i mean
0: one of the biggest things that i think is really important and sometimes is overlooked is the is is the debrief isn't it is that when something does happen because there is a culture in the police, isn't there, that is that kind of, oh, you just get on with it, it's the job. I mean, people yeah. don't realise, actually, what it would be abnormal for most people. And, I, and I, you know, I said this um, to HR when I came back after having the breakdown, and I said, Do you know what? I would much rather deal with somebody with a samurai sword trying to kill me. come into a meeting like this and speak to hr Mm. and that's a weird thing to say isn't it is the fact that you you're more than comfortable in dealing with somebody that is trying to kill you Mm. because you just you automatically go into it you you wear the armor you know what you're doing you you're gonna serve and I, i think it's interesting to think about that support that we get because some people don't realize it is alien isn't it and this thing about canteen culture and you know it's very easy to be criticized criticize the police if they make a mistake or but the how, how much do you think of an impact that has in regards to you've got the pressure from the public, you've got the pressure from the press, and then you've got all of the politics that's now being thrown into policing to make sure that everybody's squeaky clean. I mean, what are your, your thoughts without we won't go too deep into the politics of it, but just the impact that that ha- has now and it's making it more disconnected, isn't it? We're, we're making our senior officers more disconnected and it's more about half covering sometimes than
1: it is it is is. and and when you know when i'm dealing with my colleagues have have come forward for support uh, and you talk to them about the actual incident uh, and it's not the actual incident that's caused a problem it's the way they've been dealt with by the management following the incident causes the biggest problem and as you're quite right, say, you quite rightly say, we can deal with the life threatening situation, but it's when you get poorly treated by your management following that incident and there's no support around you that that's that's what causes the problem and that's what causes the damage to your, to your mental health. And this is what this is why I'm pushing for better sort of mental health awareness training for supervisors so they can see, you know. What what damage you know that their actions can, can have on on the you know the people they're looking after and it, it's I won't say it's a simple fix but it it is an easy solution you know, just being aware of you know, the language you use and and the support that you offer and, and I appreciate you know there's, there's quite a few supervisors out there have got all good intentions uh, but it, it can be quite damaging you know they would say a flippant remark but you know that that flippant remark is what stares in the back of your mind. You know, I mean, I was involved in an incident. It was a police a police shooting that I was involved in. Uh, and, you know, we dealt with the incident, no problem at all. It was attempted suicide by cop. Uh, and then we were going through all the procedures afterwards. And then our superintendent at the time came down and he said to me, he said, well, thank God it was only a toy gun. And you think, you know, really, thanks a lot for that. So we we dealt with the incident, you know, we put it to bed and all the other bits and pieces. And, and that remark has stared with me throughout. Yeah. And you know, at the time he probably thought, oh, just by giving this one, it's gonna ease the situation. But you know, it, it had that sort of damaging effect on you know on my sort of uh you know, the way I dealt with that incident.
0: And I think you picked up on something there, and this is something that I talk a lot about, um, which is maybe something we should pick up on, which is the difference between sympathy and empathy so I can directly correlate one of my colleagues when I was in the 136 week you know as a copper it was in some ways when I look back it was hilarious because it was the 136 week that we go to when you walk in that, and all of the people that are in there know you because you're used to being in the uniform and you're used to taking people in there. and the psychologists and all the raid team and everybody are going the, what's going on here? Um, wait a minute, you know, and I remember, I remember my colleague, and I know that she meant this from, you know, from a nice place, but she said, she said to me, yeah, but don't worry, it's all going to be all right. And, mm-hmm. and I knew that she was being sympathetic, but I think one of the things that we need to train people in society generally, not just in the police or anywhere else, is the difference between sympathy and empathy um and often sympathy comes from a place of you know trying to not have that difficult conversation or not making light of it but just going oh this feels awkward I wasn't involved how do I deal with this what do I do so you try and say something that you think would make somebody feel mm. better rather than actually just holding space um and, and you know as an interviewer as a copper what is the best way that you get people talking is you don't say anything that those silent pauses in interviews, it's the probably the best thing you, you could ever teach a, a new probationary constable is yes. you stop, give the question, and then sit there and just tap your fingers. <laughs> because they will eventually fill the space, you know, normally. And and that's what empathy is, really. Sometimes empathy is like, okay, I see you. You know, you let me give you space to be heard, or let me just I can see that you're there if you need me. And I think that's one of the things, and I think this is I don't know if agree but i think a lot of it is about being process driven and art covering so that we can be very critical i know i was um and i've openly been critical on social media about you know senior managers and senior officers but then when you look at it from their point of view it's I've got all these tick boxes to do because if we don't get it right, it's in the papers, and then we get criticized for not doing this. And we need Mm. need to make sure that if that person does go and harm themselves, or they go and do this, or they go and do that. And I had to go through that process with me. The way that I was handled was absolutely horrible. Mm. You know, it was, and I, it's not that I have forgiven the process, but I actually have been able to reflect and understand it and go, the problem is it was ignorance it was that they didn't understand what was going on so the only thing they could do was get a piece of paper from hr and go right what do i what do i need to do mm. to just make sure that i've ticked the box and i think that is part of the problem even police regulations from the 1950s you know we really need to have a look at this, not just the mental health it's it's the whole it's the whole thing isn't it um, yeah. you know about when we're dealing even with disciplinary stuff actually has there been a shift change in that person's behavior because that's what led to me there was this massive shift change that I didn't feel supported so I became rebellious and I was then started kicking off and Mm. then people thought oh he's now being a little bit you know he's he's not towing the line so now we're going to go harder and you go harder you get more disconnected in your mental health and there's this spiral that happens instead of just pausing and just saying wait a minute this is a good cop normally goes out everything's fine you know What's happened? Mm. You know, and I don't know if you've found that similar pattern. I mean, as there have been when you've dealt with people through what you do through mental health, have you found that that there's been that rebellious nature? Have you found that people have you know been, been trying to be stuck on, or you know, yeah. you don't need to go into any details, obviously? But my point is is that people have changed in the way that they are, and it's because of their mental health, but it's been read as something different. Yeah. if that's something that you've experienced
1: oh uh, yeah and definitely And uh, um, just just going back to your point regarding sympathy and empathy I mean, uh, one of the most impactful bits of the the courses that i run is the uh video by brenny brown yes
0: that's the one that i was yeah that's one that I had in mind Amazing uh, and
1: it. you know and, and i when, when i play that you can see the students on the course go oh and it, it makes sense now, you know. And again, you know, a lot of people have gone away thinking, do you know what? I've now changed the language I use. And and it also, it, it breaks down this sort of like, uh, it's this lack of confidence in someone coming forward and having a conversation because, you know, they don't want to hear the trauma that you've gone through. And I said to them, well, well, view it from this bit, you know you're not there to fix the person. You're not going to be able to fix the person. We're going to change our sort of mentality from being a fixer to someone who's going to be able to empower that person to sort of, you know, get themselves back on the road to recovery. And all you need to say to that person is I can only imagine what you've gone through and I can acknowledge the fear and whatever, but I'm just so grateful you've actually spoken to me and come and reached out for support. And that's the most important message I put out on these courses.
0: Yeah, there's a, just going back to that, there's a great quote by Brené Brown um, and 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 I love this and I've actually got it, I used to have it as one of my background Zoom things and it's vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable but they are never weakness and when I talk to people about that I say imagine you're a soldier or even a police officer and you're, you're pinned down or you're in that position where you 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 know your life is there's not many people that are just chilling out there there is a vulnerability that you have to recognize that you go whoa there's something wrong here I could die there's a vulnerability and you have to take an action Mm. so we see vulnerability as weakness you know that's societally I think it's in our especially the British stiff upper lip and I think that runs throughout the police it's kind of I remember I remember a colleague After I'd actually recovered and I'd come back, um, and obviously I was talking a lot about this, and I was really surprised at something that he said. And he said, at the end of the day, when you've gone through this, should you really be back policing? And I was, it's the first time that I've actually felt discrimination. You know, we talk a lot about discrimination, but we don't, there's not much that we talk about about mental health discrimination. You know, we always always talk about discrimination being around colour we always talk yeah. about discrimination being sexual you know as in different sexes sex discrimination and gender discrimination but actually if you underpin and go a layer lower and we strip away the body <laughs> of that mm. person actually what it really is is mental discrimination it's this person seems different to me therefore i discriminate and in the police You know, that's a big thing, isn't it? Equality, diversity, bringing everybody in. And I was so shocked and surprised when I went through this at how discriminated I felt Mm. due to the lack of misunderstanding about what mental health is. I don't, I'm sure you share that kind of passion, and that's why that you speak up and you do what you do. Yeah,
1: I mean, this, this is one of the points. I mean, I used, I used to run a stress awareness input for the authorised firearms officers, and one of the questions, when I used to open up the session by talking about, you know, people who've been injured on duty, you know, what sort of physical injuries have they picked up? You know, broken bones, you know, sprained knees, you know, bad backs, all that. And people are quite happy to talk about that. I said, so, okay, then. So, how many people have been off sick with stress then? And it was like, no one was quite willing to talk about that. Yeah, I knew that you know, stress played a major part yeah. in sort of sickness. And then I said, well, why is it such a taboo subject? Why are people reluctant to talk about it? You know, we, we can talk about someone breaking their leg and not getting back to work for six months. Yet, if someone breaks a head, you know, something, they have a mental uh, illness. And, and they're off work for six to eight weeks whilst they're going through therapy and one of you. What's different with that? Why they're treated differently and why we're we not able to talk to that person saying, you know, how's it going? How are you doing? You know, how's, how's your recovery going? We're not comfortable having that conversation, yet we're happy to talk to someone saying, how's the rehabilitation going with the, with the leg? You're getting physio and all that. And so it's breaking down that stigma and going back to the the other point you made about sort of picking up the early warning signs with someone who, who becomes rebellious. If you look closely, you can see those early warning signs you know, before yeah. they become rebellious. You know, they start pushing, 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 pushing. And you think, well, what's going on here? And, and this is what I'm all about, is getting that early intervention. Having that conversation with someone, is everything all right, Mac? Because you don't seem yourself. You seem to sort of like have this uh, a low tolerance as to what's going on, and and having that conversation and picking up early doors before they then sort of go on to that rebelliousness and you know looking to be stuck on, or even worse, or you know, being in an incident out in the street, and you know they react sort of to something that's you know, quite. You know something that we, we normally deal with the abuse and, and whatever, but they overreact to it and you think we've yeah. got to prevent that. We've got to prevent that officer putting himself in that situation. Yeah. So it's all about the early intervention. And stuff. that's
0: exa- that's exactly what happened to me. That was exactly what happened to me. I was dealing with I had um a probation well just come out of the probation I had a probation PCSO and we were dealing with somebody, it was a homeless guy and that happened and I felt a panic attack coming on. And mm-hmm. that's what happened to me, and it was like completely yeah. out of character. Um, and actually, my colleague reported that saying, "I'm I'm concerned. I'm concerned about Marcus. I'm concerned. This doesn't seem like this because obviously yeah. he spent time with me. Um, I've been a tutor. You know, we'd worked together. You know, when you have a partnership, you pick up these things, don't you? You know what's what's going on. Um, and and that then led to an investigation over three or four months that nobody told me about.
1: Yeah,
0: you know." And, and that was completely out of character. But I didn't feel... And it was interesting that I knew that I knew that I didn't feel right. And I'd had suicidal thoughts. And I'd actually... You mentioned... Uh, we mentioned before about trim off um, before we started recording. And, and the trim process hadn't been put in place for me. And my mental health went downhill and I was having these suicidal thoughts. But it's interesting when I had that, I didn't have the confidence to anything because I thought as soon as I mentioned I've got suicidal thoughts that's it job over They'll think I'm another yeah. eventually I did I did say you know listen this is happening went through trim and then nothing happened the other end and it was actually the breakdown happened after this kind of this investigation which was a complete nothingness really yeah was a complete nothingness um and I just broke down and I just said boss you know I'm still having these suicidal thoughts I am not well you know i I don't know what's and then that was it this bright white light broke down Mm. um and everybody you know it was like i going god you seem so confident you seem so everything was on it and every and that was the biggest thing i was so good at hiding Mm. the way that i was and that's one of the signs i think sometimes that overconfidence and my book that i I called drown in anxiety the first the first title was going to be the power of not proving um and one of the things that you mentioned was stress um and i want to put a little bit of a reframe on that to make people who listen to this think about the word stress because we use stress as kind mm. of part of the job isn't it you've got to be able to cope with stress yeah well but you,
1: have, you have good stress and bad stress you know that, yeah in the, the day yeah.
0: and, and and you mentioned sickness and stress and there's a couple of connectors in there for me that if you change the word stress to dis-ease, which is what stress is, and take the hyphen out it's disease, mm. sickness. So there is an absolute correlation, and even in the English language, that connects negative stress and negative environments
1: mm.
0: to sickness. Um, and the other thing that's another thing that's really interesting when it comes to the mind is the placebo. We talk about the placebo as Latin for the physician within. Mm. And if If you are healing, whether that's physically or mentally, if your mind, the environment in your mind is safe and you believe what people are telling you and you feel supported and they're telling you this will be better and this will be okay, and we've got your back, then you will be at ease and then you can then heal. If you're not at ease and you don't trust the process, then your mental health is going to get worse, which is going to impact your physical health. You know, so it, it it's they're not separate. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. They are yeah. not separate and should yeah. be treated as one. You know, um, and and I'm sure with the let's go back to the firearms. You know, let's face it. Most firearms officers work out. You know, they like their sleeve tattoos. You know, they like their <laughs> they get their extra small shirts to put them on. they spray on shirts. You yeah. Know? And we see those guys. And the who, men are
1: just the same as well.
0: Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> equality. I must mention the men as well. Um, But yeah, but those guys physically—they look after themselves. They need to. It's you know, Mm. especially SO nineteen. Let's face it, you know the stuff that those guys are having to train and and they're having to do. And they're they are professional. You know, all police officers are professional, but that is the elite, isn't it? Mm. Um, And what those guys are being asked to do, you know, we don't carry firearms in this country as a matter of course, Mm. and the processes and protocols that need to go in place when we've got. When we're following the firearms team in, the decisions that they need to make in that split second, you know, and we come up to the anniversary of Lee Rigby, aren't we? And everything mm. that happened with that. So when those guys are having to go in and, you know, is it an imitation firearm? Is it a knife? What's the risk? The billions of bits of information that they need to take in and whether they pull that trigger,
1: mm. just,
0: you know, they're well-trained, but what are your, I mean, what are your experiences of, you know, guys, women that, that have had to pull that trigger? You know, how has that felt afterwards? Because it's, you know, the first time you do that, it's it's not natural.
1: No, no, it's not. Uh, and it, at the time, everything slows down. It's like a, tra- you, it feels like a training exercise because everything slows down. I mean, it's like, you know, those people who've been involved in a car accident, you, you know, time just slows down. Yeah. It goes into black and white, you know, you lose your audio perception. There's there's loads of different things going. On. You, know, you go to your basic motor skills uh, and you just focus. And, and this is where the, the fight or flight bit comes in, and this is where your training takes over. And this is why we hammer it on up time and time again about you know, your your reactions and 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 being you've got to be physically fit to be mentally fit and if you're not mentally fit you're not going to be physically fit so there's that there's that sort of you know uh, relationship there uh, and I know a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on being physically fit for the job and um, what I'm trying to push is that you need to be mentally fit as well you need to sort of do some sort of training mentally because you, you, know, you can be as, as physically fit as you want to be but if you if your brain's not in the right place, then that's going to cause hesitation. And then in those split-second circumstances, especially when you look at the footage from the Lee Rigby um, situation, you know, that, that was a split-second decision-making process. So you've got to be switched on to that threat assessment and you've got to sort of take in all that information, your brain's got to sort of take in all that information and make a decision in, in a microsecond, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it, it was the time was you know less than a second you know, that that decision would be made and, um so you you think about the pressure that's that's putting on the body you know physically and mentally that's why it's so so important to sort of emphasize the fact that you need to work on your mental fitness just as much as you your your physical fitness yeah.
0: and one of the things that uh, my, my son has actually just come back from Cataract, so he's just done three days selection for the parachute regiment and right. oh brilliant uh, And I said to him, I said, they will run you up and down hills until you're sick. I Mm. said, but what you need to concentrate on is forget the physical, forget you're physically fit. What they're trying to get into is your headspace. They're trying to get you to make mistakes. They're trying to get you. Can you conform to commands? And I said to him that, you know, I do meditation, you know, I do do yoga and that can be seen as a little bit kind of, it's a bit girly. It's a bit wussy, Mm. but actually... Go and do your research on the Navy SEALs, go and do your research on the SAS. You'll know this. You know, you've 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 um uh you're a firearm form firearms off your firearms instructor. What is the thing that you have to concentrate on when you've got that weapon system in your hand? It's your breathing.
1: Mm-hmm. Before
0: you take that shot, it's your breathing. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and the reason the reason for that, for people if they don't know, is that when you go into that fight or flight mode, you get cortisol that fires around your brain. And it shuts down your neocortex. It shuts down your social skills. It shuts down all of that. And Mm. you're going into caveman mode. And the last thing that you want in a public space as a firearms police officer is somebody Mm. who is in caveman mode that's going to start spraying bullets everywhere. So that physical fitness, I mean, I don't know if within firearms, whether that is something that's taught about meditation and about the breath and that physical, what happens. I mean, I've never... I've worked alongside firearms officers and stuff. I've yeah. never done the training myself. I was a taser officer. But, yeah, is that something that is taken into account, that sort of stuff? When
1: Well, it's certainly something I brought into my instructional technique. Um, I mean, when you're authorised firearms, officer, uh, especially in the Met, they had to sort of come training every three months. Uh, so there's four training cycles a year. Uh, every other training cycle was a classification for the authorized firearms officers who I was responsible for looking after. So these are the guys and girls who are looking after the embassies, the airport and, and the royal palaces. Uh, so we were looking after those. So we had 1500 um, firearms officers we looking after. Uh, and what I, one of my sort of chats I would do with them is, you know, uh, part of the qualification, uh, and everyone would sort of dread the twenty meter uh, handgun shoot, the Glock shoot. That, that was the sort of you know the nemesis. And I would say to him, say you know, uh, what uh, what distance do you do you fail your classification from? So everyone would go, yeah, twenty meters, twenty meters. And I said, no, it's about seven or eight miles. When you get on the train or when you get in your car to drive to that firearms training centre. And you start to have these negative thoughts about the classification, that's when you fail your classification. Yeah. And I had people stood on the 20 meter point, just stood still. I just uh, explained the shoot. I said, right, okay, I just want you know, just to check your pulse. So most people have got the, the Fitbits or the smartwatches, and they're all stood on the point, not doing any exercise whatsoever. And we're talking about pulse rates that were going up to 130 beats per minute, and they were doing nothing. So this is the power that the brain can have. As you say, you know, this cortisol that's rushing around the body. And so, so what I want you to do now is a box breathing technique. You know, the four yeah. seconds in, yeah. hold four seconds out for four seconds, uh, and hold and, and and repeat that. Just repeat that cycle, and then just see what that does to your pulse rate. And, and without doubt, you know, the vast majority of people reduce their anxiety, reduce their pulse and that was just by the the breathing techniques. And I know it's something that you know people like the SAS teach for those that are in combat uh, um, zones because yeah, but it it just sort of slows the mind down and and gives them clarity of sort of decision making because they're getting oxygen to the brain and they're able to sort of analyze what the threat is and, and make sort of more rational decisions as opposed to that sort of like you know panic decision under fight or flight. So yeah, I I taught uh, breathing. uh, So we also taught the the meditation side of things. I introduced yoga down at the firearms training center. We had to brand it as fitness yoga to get the firearms officers through the door, because again, they thought it was all pink and fluffy and tree hogging and all that sort of stuff um you know and, and the sight of seeing me in your pants was probably a very <laughs> off point, I mean, so. but anyway we've gotten through the doors and, and yes the, you know the physical side of them fantastic you know everyone's got a bad back or hips because of all the kit you carry, and and yeah. you're sat in cars for bloody you know eight hours a day and whatever you know it, it, it does sort of catch up with you but they've found the physical bit very beneficial for the core strength and and uh, the flexibility of the joint but what they also said was a 15-minute meditation at the end of the session is probably the first time they actually felt as though they were able to relax and slow everything down and reduce that anxiety so they really benefit from the 15-minute meditation and now you know those sessions are oversubscribed you know when we run the yoga sessions you know they're oversubscribed um so and they're now looking to you uh, start yoga in sort of some of the operational sort of uh, firearm spaces because the the benefits of it.
0: Yeah. And I think the thing, the other thing with, if anybody knows about yoga, it's not about the asanas. So it's not actually about the movement. It's actually, so the yoga that I've been doing at the moment is more about positional holding and breathing, because Mm. when you're using the breath, where we normally work the muscles from the outside, when you do yoga, you work the muscles from the outside and the inside. So Mm. that's, that's where you get the physical, but because you're, also focusing on your on your breath. I don't know if you found this with when maybe the firearms were super fit, you know, how did they find their breathing? Because actually, even if they're doing weights and stuff, sometimes people don't breathe properly. They don't hold their posture yeah. properly. It's more about, you know, how many can I rack and, and all the rest of it. And did you find that they found that benefit through that exercise as well with breathing and yeah, know? I know, you know,
1: with special the, the breathing techniques. Uh, you know, it improved their sort of uh, their stamina and their fitness, their physical fitness, because they were learning to breathe properly. You know, uh, properly sort of, you know, expanding their lungs and using the stomach and all that sort of to, to do the breathing. So, you know, by doing all that, they were able to improve their stamina uh, and the mental fitness and the physical fitness. So, yes, they were. You know, the-
0: what are your thoughts? Just just taking this kind of a step back because if we're looking at developing, especially police officers, and we're looking at developing a healthy, a healthy mind, healthy body, healthy soul, healthy spirit in policing. I know it sounds a bit little woo woo, but really, should we not be doing this from day one at training school?
1: Mm-hmm. Because if uh, we're doing I've, I've it at training
0: school, have... we can bring that out, you know.
1: Yeah, I've, I've had uh, conversations with a number of universities uh, and I'm open, there's a couple of projects I'm involved with, uh, with a couple of universities that run the degree courses for the, for the new recruits. Uh, and I want them to start to sort of concentrate on sort of mental resilience, building up their mental resilience and using these techniques or breathing techniques to reduce anxiety. Because if you can get in at day one, and and get them more aware of their own mental fitness, then that's yeah. going to prepare them for their the police career ahead. You know, I'm not I'm going, to, going to say you know this is going to prevent all sort of stress related injuries because of the trauma that people get exposed to, but what it's going to do, it's going to give them the tools and the resilience to sort of deal with it a lot better. You know, so yeah,
0: and I think while you're in training school, you're in that you're in that place where you are actually you know there's a lot going on isn't it mentally you've Mm. got the law to learn you then go into i mean i used to love going to the the gym when i was in there i i love doing angry man and all that sort of stuff because it was like Mm. it wasn't cognitive i wasn't having to sit and do any paperwork and stuff but actually i think if we can teach this stuff we can teach i mean mental health awareness you know mental health first aid for me we we talked about this um before the podcast but we said all supervisors should have it but really that should be mandated as in training school we should be mm-hmm. learning about a healthy mind so that when they do get on area when there isn't time at least they've got the skills to go back to haven't they they got do you know what? i've had a really bad shift yeah but i don't feel that bad about i can't speak up to it to somebody about it or do you know what i'm just going to spend some time just relax i'm just going to go inside i'm just going to do some breathing i'm just you know and these are for me are simple things that can be done which are going to get higher results and higher grades in regards to yeah. people's cognitive awareness and people's cognitive learning when we're doing incidents. So when you, you know, when you're doing scenarios in training, you know, we look very much about, right. Was it proportional? Was it legal? Were you accountable? Was it necessary? The ethical, the whole plain model. Um, and we look at all of the other aspects of it of subject impact factors and how the person in front of you is presenting, and we throw mm. the law in, but we actually forget the person that's applying that. And we don't go, and we often don't say, Okay, tell me what happened. How do you feel about that? And more importantly, why?
1: Yeah. Well, well, this, this is something that, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever spoken to Sam Smith from the Green Ribbon uh, campaign, where he's trying to get mental health sort of mandatory. Uh, as part of the training, yeah. So I know, I know he's he's going for for that angle. You know, I mean, I, I'm looking for you know, an early intervention uh, as opposed mm. to sort of went to someone's broken and, and then dealing with them. You know, I want to get in there early, as I said, mm. uh, improving people's sort of mental health awareness uh, from day one. You know. Uh, Mental fitness screening before they actually come into the police. You know, where is your mental fitness? Because you know, when you start to talk to people who are finally, you know, their stress containers finally overflow, and and they're having that sort of you know uh, episode, and you you break it down, and some quite a few times it goes back to sort of childhood. You know, poor yeah. parenting, you know, all that sort of stuff. So people coming into the police, let, let's find out where they're at mentally. When they come into the place, and let's—I'm not saying let's—you know—we're no, no, not, not saying dismiss them because let's let's give them a proper structured program to improve their mental fitness, mm. as opposed to sort of you know just hoping that you know putting a plaster over it and let's let's hope they don't sort of you know come across anything too dreadful during the police career, and they get out the other side, and then you know that's it—we can wash our hands of them.
0: And I think we need to be realistic as well about this when we talk about cost, and we're not just talking cost to people, we're talking cost to police services, ambulance services, NHS, you know, we hear a lot about there's not enough money. Mm. Well, actually, how much money do we waste every year on sickness? How much money do we waste on, you know, Mm. let's look at the physical side of things, people not being able to pass physical tests and all the rest of it you know we how much money are we giving to eaps you know private companies Mm. that are providing essentially talk therapy when we need to underpin it from day one
1: yeah
0: and then if we've got a strong foundation then hopefully the rest doesn't happen but i think we're firefighting far too much aren't we and Mm. and actually we need to think about where the money shouldn't be coming at the end (laughs) we'll provide we'll provide some money here Because you've had a breakdown and that all kind of will give you some money, go off and do a course. But actually, if we invested it at the beginning, you know, we do lots of training in the police, don't we? You know, first aid, mandatory. You don't have to do it for three years by law, but we do it every year. You know, if you're a PSU officer, you go and do your PSU training down at, you know, good old Gravesend and uh, Lola Mm -hmm. Court. Get your uh, fireball at Lola Court. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do all that and we look at that physical side of things, but we, you know, we, we, when is our day for doing our mental health training? You know, when is our day for doing all that sort of stuff? And I think that's where we really need to focus, not just in the police, but I think across all of our emergency services and our frontline mm-hmm. services. And certainly now, you know, we, you know, we, we're not out of the woods with COVID yet, but let's face it, people are running on, on adrenaline.
1: Well, when you when you look at the the uh, the study that uh, Jess Miller did um, at uh, Cambridge University in relation to sort of just policing, I mean, we're not even talking about the other emergency services, uh, and and her, her figures she came up with that you know one in five police officers will develop PTSD, You know, one in four will have a, a mental illness, and you you think about that, I mean, just just using the figures from the Met, then, so I mean. Oh, I mean just trying to think how many police officers we've now gotten in the Met, I mean, I don't know what the figures are with so many people leaving. We've probably got, say, 35,000, just a sort of conservative estimate at the moment. So if you think, you know, 20% of those police officers will develop PTSD. So 7,000 police officers will have PTSD. What is that? And now put it into management speak, how much is that going to cost the Met in lost sort of hours that people take off sick? So, you know, what I'm trying to get across the management is that, you know, by implementing a proper fit for purpose sort of mental health awareness programme and mental fitness, you know, you you could save so much money, even if it's just just 10% of your sickness bill, you could save by just having a proper mental health fitness uh, uh, programme in place and people given the sort of tools to look after themselves do their own self-care and well-being identifying early doors that you know something's not quite right I'm not feeling myself right let's let us do something about this you know where some people go down the gym and do the physical activities you can do stuff that's going to be good for your mental health and your and your well-being you know trying to get that across to management to see the bigger picture but they're just all about sticking a plaster over the problem. It's not yeah. going to go away, you yeah, know. So they need to sort of change their mindset. Right? Let's let's put something in place that's going to prevent us lo- losing our employees off to sort of you know stress-related injuries and, and sickness. And and when you break it down even further, how many pe- how many police officers actually use their annual leave because they're not feeling well because the feeling burnt out you know the, the fatigue The just you know the workload is unbelievable it's just off the scale you know when you talk yeah. to you know i was ch- chatting to a colleague yesterday I mean, it was funnily enough he's, he's off sick at the moment and out of there's four ds's on his, his team and all four are off sick three yeah. of them were stress-related sickness yeah and you just and, think and then it, it becomes like a
0: virus doesn't it because the problem yeah. is we, we haven't got the we haven't got the resources as it is at the moment. So what then happens is well, people's rest days are cancelled. You know, there was this thing where we're going to try and not cancel rest days, and we're not going to, But you haven't you've you know it's, it's this thing you know we hear all the time. In the government there's another event in especially in London certainly. Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah. The, the government has drafted in another ten thousand police officers. No, it hasn't. Those no. people have just had their rest days cancelled. They've been doing, and the other thing people forget is, is that yeah, you might be doing, you know, depending on what shift you're on. I, I've, I've done it many a time when you know there's not been enough people around, and you've done an eighteen-hour shift. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: You know, you come on, and especially if you've done a night, and then you're getting in your car and you're driving home after coming in on a twelve-hour shift, doing a seven-seven night shift, and then at twenty-five to seven because it's always just before the other relief come in or whatever. Something happens and you end up nicking somebody and then custody's mm. full, or you've had to take them to a and you yeah. sat there and it's kind of half nine, 10 o'clock, and then you've got to come back and you've got to do your intel and put all that in before you go off shift. And people forget all of this, and that repeated, mm. just those little things can be stressful, can't it? And then people do yeah. go off sick and it impacts other people. Um, and again, we do have that culture as well that people chase the overtime, don't they? Yeah. You know. And they do that because, again, there's been a massive drop in wages. Yeah. So if, if we look at those needs that most people do, they're coming to policing now, and the expectation that's what's required, certainly of young officers now, you know, what is it? 20 grand? I know you get London waiting, but you talked about 20 grand to come in. Mm. And as soon as you're... It doesn't matter whether you're a probationer or whether you've been in 25 years. When you rock up, that person expects exactly the same level of service. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and and it is, it's it is really tough. So, I mean, we could talk for hours and days and all the rest of it, but if you were to kind of look to the future, and there's many of us in this space that are really trying to educate, that's what we're doing, isn't it? This is the whole point of this podcast, it's trying to try open up that conversation. Yeah. So if you've got a police officer, let's 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 break this down to two questions. If you've got a police Officer at the present moment, or even anybody else who is just not feeling feeling right, and they don't feel that they can trust the bigger organizations or they can't, you know, what would your advice be? Because I know you've got your Facebook group. So if you were, you know that fear that people have of going, Mm -hmm. I'm not feeling well, that vulnerability and knowing, you know, let's face it, the stigma still exists. Where would you say were the places of safety that they can go to, to you know, talk about this? What would your advice be? Uh,
1: well, my, well, my first advice would be to seek someone who's you know, mentally our first air trained uh, because they've had some form of you know, mental health awareness. Uh, and, and I know we had the conversation about, you know, some people have done that just for a tick box. But I think, you know, when you're in, when you're in that environment, you know the people you can go and talk to. Uh, and you, you've got to have that safe environment to go forward and, and actually have that conversation with someone. And no, you're not going to be judged. And especially in my environment, especially with the firearms, you know, because I, I know it's one of the major facts that prevents people coming forward is that you're not going to lose your authority or your firearms authority and, and be taken off ops because it, uh, that is a number of sort of knock on effects. One, that you're letting your team down if you're working on a small team. And two, the time it takes to get that ticket back and all the hurdles you've got to go through, whether that means to go and do a back to ops course, which you know is a proper pain in the ass, mm-hmm. uh, so you don't want to go through that rigmarole. So that's preventing people coming forward. So they've got some safe environment, something that's taught totally the independent uh, from from the environment to, to talk openly about what they're going through, and more importantly, to talk to someone. Who, who knows who's walked that walk as well I think that's you know that credibility because you know there's nothing more for strength than sitting down in front of someone saying you know what I just can't carry on um being uh, on the ARVs and they go well what's an ARV then and you say well I'm responsible. oh well what do they do then well we're firearms officers oh right so do you just sit in the station Went no, no, we're out of patrol. And, and you start having to explain, you think, now oh, this yeah. person, I've got a clue what, well, what yeah. I'm doing. So if I'm having to explain that, they've got no clue what my mind is going through when I'm mm-hmm. put into sort of a decision-making situation, which could mean life yeah. or death, you know, for either one of us. So, and then you switch off. It's like, you know, and we've all sat in the classroom and you've been listening to an instructor. And you think, you've never done this. Mm. So yeah. that's it. You just switch off. You think, well, what's the point of me listening to you if you've never done sort of like a, an option one vehicle stop or uh, whatever? You, why should yeah. I listen to you? Because if I ask you a question, you're not going to know the answer because you never really experienced it. You've never experienced you know, someone not complying with your your shouts when you're approaching a car and all that sort of stuff. So do what? Yeah, and and,
0: and ignorance is the big thing. I agree with that. Is that when I kind of reflected after being, you know, angry at the fact that number one, I was in that situation, number two, I got put on desk duty I wanted to be out I wasn't mm, you know, yeah. my inspector said "Go oh, and do CID your files was like no I want it out in the street I want you know boots yeah. on the ground that's what I loved doing so to put me in an office doing paperwork and doing files and ero and stuff is like oh my god you know that was awful for me that was like worst my worst nights of that but it's that ignorance of understanding isn't it mm. of what those people what those people are about so it is speaking to people who might and speaking to your colleagues isn't it and Having Mm. that, it might be a colleague who's your best mate, you know, who do you trust, who's got your back, and that that can be difficult. So, leading on from that, then, if we're looking at supervisors, you know, whether that be sergeants, whether that be inspectors, whether that be area commanders, whatever it is, if you were to give them one piece of advice in how they can have healthier officers under their command what would it be? What would you be saying to them, what they need to do as, as leaders?
1: I think from from my point of view, if those sort of leaders were to look at the successful leaders, the, the popular leaders, and, and without doubt, it's a case of they'll look after their troops. And if they've got happy, well-looked-after troops, those troops will look after that leader. They will not put them in any sort of, um, you know, a dodgy situation where they're having to sort of like you know make sure that you know they've got their arse covered, because you know they respect that person because they know they've 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 put themselves out to make sure that the you know the welfare and the well-being of the troops under them are being looked after. You know we used to call it like the, the PC's governor. You know he was. Yeah. He would look after the well-being of the troops underneath him. And without doubt, the loyalty then was reciprocated. They would look after that governor and they would never put them in, in a position where they're having to sort of you know defend themselves or you know having to write long reports to protect themselves because they would look after them, never do that. And what you see now is that because the troops on the ground aren't being looked after, they're put they're getting involved in situations, and because their mental health isn't there, they're reacting sometimes overreacting to situations because of the stress is just building up, and then that sort of comes back on the governor. So what what you find is that these, I, I wouldn't say leaders, because they're not leaders, uh, the, the management uh, have gone into sort of like protection mode, and they think yeah. about the corporation, the, uh, their sort of interests before the interests of, of the people below them, and that's what needs to change. And I think Richard Branson says, you look after your employees and they will look after you. You make sure they're happy, they'll be more productive, they'll be healthier and they will look after you. If they're happy, then your customers are going to be happy. So our customers, obviously, the public and the people we respond to. So if you've got happy sort of you know, employees, the customers are going to be happy. We're not going to have as many sort of police complaints or, or whatever you're, you know." uh, uh, use of violence, because we're able to sort of control our own sort of emotions, and we're going to reduce the amount of complaints that come in. Customers are going to... You're not going to please everyone all the time, because I know that's the nature of our job, but you know that that's going to reflect on the work that we do. And so the leaders have got to look at that. Let's look after our troops. Then they will look after the interests of the corporation, Yeah. not the other I, way around.
0: And I think one of the things that I would... I would openly challenge people, whether it be PCs, whether it be sergeants, whether it be whatever, is that when decisions are being made by managers, because there is a massive difference. And we we talk about in policing, certainly within the public sector, we talk about leadership. Um, And one of the things, a piece of advice that I would give to anybody who is in any position of authority, whether you be a PC or whether you be a chief constable, is that change the word authority, to responsibility mm. because you have authority but you are in a position of responsibility so you you should good leaders don't lead by their rank they lead by the way they do it so for me that's the one thing that if anybody's listening to this doesn't matter what rank you are because when we when we take responsibility we're able to respond and that's what we have to do as the police, as the fire, as ambulance, as whatever it is, we are responsive to what's happening in the world. So if we take responsibility, then we can respond. Yeah. So I've got you've already given me one phrase, but we always end the podcast um, <laughs> with this. So I'm going to put you on the on the spot here. What is your kind of what is your go-to phrase? Is there any particular yeah. comment or quote that you that you always go to that make people think? You know, maybe when you're training or anything like that, what's the uh, what's your go to kind of phrase if you have one?
1: Well, I I suppose what what we're using at the moment is don't wait until you're broken to to get support. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And where can so where can people get that support? Just tell me about what you're doing in regards to um, the mental health stuff that you're doing. Um, we'll put the we'll put it in the show notes anyway but Mm. just finally before we go just tell us where people can find you where people can connect to you um, and can find out more about what you're doing
1: well we've we've set up a i mean it's on facebook and i appreciate there's quite a few serving officers who are reluctant to go onto facebook but i mean i use a positive element of uh, social media and that it it can reach a lot of people And, and in particular sort of partners of Officers as well, you know, the family because these are the sort of forgotten heroes. These are the ones are sort of class net support group. So we set up a um, a Trojan wellbeing peer support group. Again, uh, it's all sort of serving retired uh, or partners of police officers and uh, paramedics. Uh, and we're, we're trying to get some sort of people from the fire brigade involved as well because we want to cover all the emergency services because we're all struggling. So Facebook, we've got um, two two Facebook um, pages. One is charge and Wellbeing, and the other one is Mental Health Awareness Training for Emergency Responders. It's a, it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but it, they're all linked together anyway. And I, I'm sure if you if you put, just put in charge and Wellbeing, it, it will come up. Obviously, we've got a presence on LinkedIn as well, which is, as you know, it's fantastic for linking all the fantastic resources are out there. So when someone comes to me with with a problem, I know that I can direct them towards the the, appropriate help uh, and that they're going to get that right support. So we're on LinkedIn as well. Uh, We're just sort of... uh, launching our website and uh, that's still in you know, work in progress at the moment so there will be a charging well-being website as well that'll be up and running but I'm hoping that the people that are involved with the peer support group are, it's going to be word of mouth and I think that's where the trust comes from yeah. you know, because you, you know what it's like within, especially within the police we're a very cynical bunch uh, so it's word of mouth when someone comes up for support and say, right, you need to go and speak to Lobby Thornton you know, or go and speak to someone who's involved with charging well-being yeah. because they will get the support. You know, they will listen to you and they will get you the support. You know, we're not here to say, right, you know, we're going to give you support in eight to twelve weeks or, or whatever the current waiting list is on occupational health. You know, we're getting people the support they need now. At, at the very least, we're able to talk to someone who understands what we are going through. Mm.
0: And I just, I want to personally thank you actually lobby because I, I, I know you won't take any plaudits for this, but you are very much the pinnacle of, of connecting all of these people together. And I'm in that Trojan wellbeing group. There's some amazing people that you brought together in one space that are not there to promote their own services. Mm. They're there to just say, listen, this is me. This is what I do. If you want to come and have a chat, you can do. As you say, a lot of them are now former serving officers so they don't have any they're not stuck down by any political you know rhetoric or anything like that and and it's really positive stuff so i think if that's one thing that anybody can take away and what i'd really like anybody who's listening to this podcast whether you are a serving officer whether you're a friend whether you're anybody i i really want them to promote what you're doing and to go out and let people know because i know what it's like when you're stuck and often that fear of going to, you know, people like police care do an amazing job, you know, help the heroes, but they are big corporates and they are funded mm-hmm. and they are well-connected. Oscar Kilo, again, do some great stuff. But sometimes when you're in that place where you don't feel safe, you need to go and find that peer support. You need to ease yourself into that and, and get that safety and that understanding and that reassurance. And that's certainly something that I know that you do and something mm-hmm. you're very passionate about. So do I. And everybody else that's in that group so we'll put the links in the show notes for this anyway so that people can connect with you um and i just yeah. want to thank you you know for everything that you're doing for policing and i'm sure as the years go by people will start to listen to people like me and yourself they go why why didn't we do this years ago it all makes sense but i just want to thank you very oh, much you. for coming on
1: yeah Brilliant. No, Brilliant. no. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Matt. And uh, it, my advice to you is to keep plugging away because you don't know what difference you're making in people's lives. Although you don't get the instant feedback from people, I know people have gone away after sort of, I've spoken to them, and it could be months, it could be a year afterwards, and, and they come back to you say, Do "You know what? After speaking to you, I, I've changed my life around." You know, and I've I've got you know uh, testaments from three police officers who said, as a result of speaking to me, that you know that they actually save their own lives. They wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for my input. So that's the strength I get, you know, I know it's very difficult in our field to get sort of that instant feedback, but, you know, just keep plugging away because you just don't know what difference you're making in people's lives.
0: Yeah, and if I may, I think I'm going to end with that quote because we mentioned Brené Brown before, but I I love this quote and I hope people can take away what the truth of what it means is that vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth Mm. and courage aren't always comfortable, but they are never weakness. So know that when you have those difficult conversations that you're not weak, it takes a lot of bravery to come forward. And trust me, once you do it, it may be a little bit crappy, but eventually Mm. you will get there. So once again, thank you very much, Lobby. And um, I'm sure that uh, people will have enjoyed this podcast. Yeah, cheers,
1: Marcus. Thank you, Matt.
0: you enjoyed today's podcast why don't you come and
1: join us at facebook.com forward slash talking underscore minds and don't forget to give us a little like thanks very much for listening see you soon